Now, the Jen Charlton Show on 930 WFMD and WFMD.com. Telling it like it is with your host, Jen Charlton. Good morning and welcome to the Jen Charlton Show. What a great day to be with you. And I want to take this opportunity to remind us of the conversation we had last week on banking. And I had the opportunity to be introduced to a gentleman that I want to, I want to bring on now to give you a taste of uh, a show we're going to do next week. But I, I thought it was important to follow up on the conversations we had around the banking, the collapse, if you will, on certain key banks. And what are those collapses indicating in terms of where we might be going uh, in banking and finance and, frankly, your money? So I wanted to make sure I... I kind of followed up on that conversation. So I have with me this morning, Robert Bose. And Robert, it's so great to meet you. I thank you so much for your time. Could you please start by telling everybody your background and why you're able to really speak on the issues around banking right now? Oh, sure. Great to be with you, Jen. Thank you. Uh, I've, I've been a banker for 30 plus years. Uh, uh, New York City banking for Chase Manhattan Bank. I was a vice president there. Uh, covering financial institutions. So I was doing mergers and structured finance and workouts for the banks, uh, lots of different kinds of financing. You know, but this was most, mostly U.S.-based. So my clients were uh, banks, insurance companies, mutual fund companies. And I very much got, got involved in you know, whether these were creditworthy entities to do deals with and looking at their capital structure. And uh, fast forward to today, uh, those th- those things are very important to see what, whether banks are surviving and, and their financial health. Uh, so I did that for, for a while, maybe nine years at Chase, and then came to Fannie Mae in 2001 and was doing su- structured finance, st- securitizations, uh, and also had my own mutual fund company, did some, uh, some f- uh, investment management. But then at Fannie Mae, they, they found that I had this banking background, and they put me in to run the risk management for, the, for Fannie Mae. So I was running the, the uh, parliamentarian, if you will, for all of our risk committees, our loan loss committees. Um, but I, they knew I was a counterparty risk guy, so they knew I could. Uh, I started started covering them in 2005, and found out that you know some of these entities were. This was a go-go years when subprime lending was really hot, if you remember, and it was starting to have a, a, a you know could see some stress coming out. So my cl- my um, counterparties at, at Fannie Mae were. Uh, some of the ones that ended up failing, you know, they're having trouble and difficulty, all kinds of entities. Uh, you might, people might remember countrywide home loans was a big entity that was probably a big independent mortgage broker and they were having some stress. So well, we, we, they owed us a bunch of money at Fannie Mae as things started turning south. And again, there's a lot of causation for this. Uh, the Fed was juicing up, lowering rates, uh, lending standards are being super easy. And uh, anybody could get a loan. You know, you get more than more than 100 cents on the dollar for your house. So that was causing some stress for some of the financial institutions. Fannie Mae also. So so we we had some money that was owed by Countrywide, uh, 600 million in 2006, and they couldn't really pay us. <laughs> so we made them a deal. We said, hey, um, we want you to stroke a check for 600 million dollars, or go get two billion of capital from somebody. Or we're seizing all your assets, all 400 billion of your mortgage servicing rights. 
and they decided to go get $2 billion of capital from Bank of America. And then uh, it, it, things got worse the next year. They owed us $1.8 billion, couldn't pay it. We said, we're going to do it again. You guys either stroke a check for $1.8 billion to pay us back for the loan recourse you owed us, or get through $2 more billion, or we seize your assets. <laughs> and then uh, so they, they, they put up, uh, got $4 billion of capital, from B of A, in which which meant they owned almost 25% of the of uh, countrywide. Then a few months later, Bear Stearns failed, Lehman failed, and those were counterparties we had to deal with as well. And uh, that and was America, such a mess. It was a mess. It was it was it was very dynamic, uh, very dynamic. It was fire drill after fire drill during those times. Uh, you know, going up to the Federal Reserve to talk about various things, AIG bailing out whether they could afford to pay us back. But Bank of America bought all of Countrywide a few months later for $6 billion. So they, they basically put $10 billion in to buy Countrywide. But they ended up, over time, stepping into $50 billion worth of losses. It was, it was a horrible trade for them. But, but I was um, you know, making sure that Bank of America paid us back everything they owed us. And, it, and they ended up paying us $11 billion. So what started out as what, you know, $600 million in losses they had to repay us. We collected ele- uh, every every bit of $11 billion. Uh, it was a fight over many years. So that was the type of thing I was doing for Fannie Mae, basically making sure the mortgage insurers paid us back. We seized some. We, we set the new capital standards for the industry. Uh, we did it for the title insurance industry, for the banks, the bank sector, what capital requirements. So I, that pulled me into working with the U.S. government. Uh, the Obama administration was doing some bailouts for housing finance agencies. So I was sat through um, when Hank Paulson and the you know, left the remains of the uh, Obama and Bush administrations and, and nationalized the, the government-sponsored entities. They basically nationalized the mortgage market because all this carnage was happening. And they didn't really need to do the big things that they talked about. Like they wanted to have $100 billion backstop for Fannie and $100 billion for Freddie. And they wanted to go big. To, to basically protect bond investors like China, Japan, and they didn't really need to do that. They could have, they, they basically had us cook our books and inflate the losses that we might face. We so really, hold on, what you just said is is stunning. What time, what year was that when that started happening? It was Obama. This was, a, it, it, the takeover of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac was in September 8th of 08. And right after that, in 2009, um, the Obama administration uh, basically sent in BlackRock to to tell us to cook our books, to justify the takeover. They said, you need $100 billion of, of taxpayer money. We said, no, we don't. We don't need that much. We have a lot of counterparties who are going to pay us back. And they said, well, forget about that. Forget about the $40 billion you're going to get from all these other banks and mortgage insurers. Just zero that part out. But we want you to inflate your losses to show how bad it's going to be to justify the $100 billion take bailout we just did for you all. Okay, I, I got to wrap my head around what you just said, because that is laying the groundwork for a lot of what we're looking at right now. And when I say looking at, there's a group of us looking at the, in. I'm going to be kind, the influence of BlackRock. In what's going on, fast forward to Norfolk Southern. Mm-hmm. They also fund LabCorp. Mm-hmm. And LabCorp is no longer doing the testing for the chemical burn impact 
because BlackRock funds them. That's the essence of what I've learned. Mm -hmm. What you're indicating to me is that there's a history of BlackRock imposing on business and enterprise their will. They have a relationship with China and thereby the Chinese Communist Party because there's no way they'd operate separate from them. So I think it's stunning what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it can't be lost. And there's something to deal with as a nation that we would have such a corrupt corporate enterprise. So in 2009, BlackRock and actually Blackstone as well were, were hired guns by the Obama administration to implement their policy and to execute the nationalization of the mortgage market. And in doing so, that protected the investors in, in Fannie Mae securities, trillions, including China, Japan. Um, and, and institutional investors wanted a bailout then, and they were, they were agitating for taxpayer bailout just to make sure that their bonds paid off. They didn't want to take the market value risk of the bonds. So, so the parallels to today in banking are striking. Um, you know, again, just going back, BlackRock basically told us to inflate our losses in our cash flow forecasts. And we, we had these obligations from other counterparties to pay us back for, for mortgage sharing risk, mortgage insurers, bond insurers, recourse arrangements with banks like, like Bank of America and Countrywide. We collected $11 billion from Bank of America. But, but that way took us a few years. I think they did it in three years after the fact. But, but BlackRock gave us, this, told us to assign no value to any collections from, from Bank of America and no value to all the, 40, the, the $30 billion we ended up getting from the mortgage insurers. What is the impact of them essentially lying? Because it, it, didn't that also, wasn't that in essence a lie to the American people? It was. It was for some, and they picked winners. For some entities, you could extend and pretend you did not have losses. But for others, you had to accelerate and, and deny any recoveries. So it was, it was an uneven application of, of uh, regulatory principles, of accounting principles. Uh, they made us cook our books to inflate our losses. And um, that, that was a lie. And it, you know what? This problem, the mortgage problem, was minor until they went big with the bailout. The, region, the, the home price problems were regionally, regionally based. We call them the sand states, Florida, Arizona, Nevada. Those are the entities that were having problems. The rest of the country was not experiencing home price depreciation like those. But the, the scare tactics that the institutional investors, you know, the bondholders, they wanted their bailout. And they made it, they agitated for a, um, a full government backstop. And when they went in so big with it, and, and I can tell you, Hank Paulson did not know what he was doing. Uh, Tim Geithner did not know what to say. They, they don't know this stuff. They're, they're kind of ivory tower wonks that don't understand bank regulatory structures. You know, they don't, didn't understand housing finance. They forced this on. And when they went so big with this big guarantee, that scared the market even more. So it was like, you know, everybody, they, they'd spread out the home price problems to the rest of the country. And um, 
and then the, if the if they exacerbated the fear is what I'm saying. So that that movie they also we, caused a market crash in real estate. They did. They did. Well, then then the reaction was to set the, to tighten the mortgage standards, which, which were needed. They should have been done counter cyclically five five years before that, though. But they're always late. The regulators are, are, are very slow to react, and they do so often with with capture by the industry. And, and, and political pressure by the administration. So we've seen that movie before. We're seeing it maybe play out again in the banking sector today. So now you have similar situation where, you know, people are agitated. The, the institutional investors are at, at, want a, a full government backstop of all deposits, uninsured deposits. We have an we have an insured deposit system that is pretty pretty damn safe right now. The FDIC has a has a, a, a backstop on you know, the safe deposits, the small deposits. But now the institutional investors want us to insure all the big money deposits. <laughs> and we can't do that without a taxpayer backstop. Based on what you know now, how many banks have gone under? Two, well, there, there are a bunch of little banks. The FDIC always has little banks. But the two big ones are um, uh, Signature Bank in New York City. And that was actually the catalyst there was some fraud in the crypto market. Digital currency had some, you know, problems. There was a, a Chinese entity uh, that took down FTX, and there was some fraud in FTX where people's uh, crypto was was taken out of their wallets. Uh, there's a half a billion dollars just to one Chinese entity. So, so it was a. Wait, let me back up. So you're saying the Chinese went into people's wallets in crypto currency and took. The money out of their wallets. They literally thieved the crypto. Is that what you're saying? There were two two Chinese related frauds at FTX. One was just outright fraud of a half, almost four hundred million dollars, that that caused a loss at FTX. There was another uh, expert, and this is still in court right now. An expert in the FTX uh, litigation uh, that there was a um, the, you know digital currency is kept in these electronic wallets. And they're supposed to be secure, but somebody hacked into them with a line of code. We believe that was a Chinese hack as well. So th that that was a big counterparty risk that Signature Bank was involved in. That that failure at FTX for those other reasons, lots of reasons, they were doing political donations. All those things took down. It 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 had a major impact on Signature Bank, where Barney Frank is on the board. Um, so Signature Bank was was now rather in, ironic, isn't oh, it? Oh yeah. Did the yeah. Todd Frank? Yeah, the guy who caused the two, the subprime problem. Uh, now he's he's in another disaster, you know, it, contributing to another disaster at Signature Bank. So so Sil Silicon Valley Bank was the first one to kind of go for for different reasons. They had it, it, super concentration in these venture capital funds. Which are basically it's a kind of a Ponzi scheme where you can only they don't make these the venture capital entities that these funds invest in don't make money. They only rely on the next round of equity financing to pay back the the prior rounds. So it's sort of like, and when that that music stopped about a year ago, so the IPO market in venture capital funds seized up. So they didn't have their takeout and didn't have their, their cash flow funding. So they go to Signature Bank. I'm sorry, Silicon Valley Bank. They Draw on all their lines of credit. Um, they're they're not the loan the loan portfolio is awful. And then you have this other big whammy about that that is affecting all banks. That 
high interest rates or the, the rapid increase in interest rates over the past year, you know, where 10-year treasuries are going from 100 basis points to, to three or 400 basis points, that had a really negative impact on banks' bond holdings. And um, so they've had unrealized losses in their bond portfolio. So it was a combination of bad lending at Silicon Valley Bank, rapid outflows of deposits, and a bond portfolio that was taking unrealized losses. So the th two or three things all rammed, rammed together. That is a very rare situation. The signature bank problem, somewhat unique. The, the Silicon Valley Bank problem, somewhat unique. And it's not a systemic problem. The, 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 this was a, a mismanaged bank. These were mismanaged banks. Okay, so let's back up. But they also, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, again, tied to the Chinese. Because of all of that high-tech money, very speculative. I mean, there were some big accounts in there like Roblox, huge money makers. But there were also a lot of, I'm sure, startups and things that are, you're selling air and in water, it's not, you know, it's not developed yet, or it's an idea, you know, it's a concept. I think a lot of times those startup high tech, it's very speculative. Yes. But, but in the case of um, Silicon Valley Bank, there, there's some understanding that there's Chinese involvement in that bank. Did the taxpayers get, <laughs> the only word that comes to mind is, Posed with the debt and the losses of uh, Silicon Valley Bank, did was that a bailout? And is the taxpayer going to pay for it, or will the government recover their money and the taxpayers will not, or consumers will not be hurt by this? It was a bailout, and the the, the first thing they did was they they whacked the FDIC fund. It had 125 billion in assets. And in order to pay out all these deposits, they have to basically have a claim against the, the FDIC fund. So now that that, that is a, a is cost. it wiped out? No, no. It went from 125 billion down to probably 100 billion, um, and now that 100 billion. So in, in when they, they there are insured depositors and uninsured depositors, and Silicon Valley Bank had a very small proportion, you know, less than a third, I think, were insured depositors. They're supposed to have priority, so they, they, you know, when you liquidate a bank, they get paid first. So the the Yellen Biden administration fundamentally changed that priority. Now they're saying, well, oh no, we're going to cover the uninsured depositors because they want a bailout. You know, Gavin Newsom's calling them on the phone saying, you know, I have these large accounts there. You got to cover those too, and and other investors like Ripple. You know, Chinese. Uh, there, there, there are other uh, fintech entities with who knows who owns them. Um, they wanted their 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 uninsured deposits covered. Covered. So this bailout was a a, a demand. You know, they were crying for their bailout for the uninsured depositors, and that put the insured depositors at risk. So the threshold is two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So FDIC covers two, the first two hundred fifty thousand of deposits. Anything over that, you're supposed to be smart and know what you're doing. Don't concentrate. Or put it in put it in a mutual fund. Mutual fund is, marks their books to market all the time. So um, anyway, they, they, they basically ginned up this, I think, fake need for a bailout. Gavin Newsom is a wealthy guy, right? Yes. 
Did Gavin Newsom have money in Silicon Valley Bank? He did. He and his wife had accounts, large accounts at Silicon Valley Bank. So Newsom covered Newsom with a phone call. Is that accurate? It was part of the pressure. A lot of folks were putting pressure on, on Silicon Valley Bank. And I think I think I would say more more pressure from the seventy five billion in venture capital loans that were at Silicon Valley Bank. These are entities that were not cash not producing cash flow. They were not a rational investment by the bank. The bank shouldn't have been lending money to these entities to begin with. So they this is kind of a, a backdoor bailout of those loans. And gotcha. And, and, and then in combination with the 125 billion or so of, of bond bond investments that were worth you know 10 billion less, the bank started out really well. The, the, the auditors KPMG signed off on everything being fine, clean opinion. As of February 24th this year, two weeks later, the bank is seized. They had 18 billion of capital. Two weeks later, capital evaporated, and it went to cover bond losses. And I believe the failures of the loan portfolio, and that's yet to be seen. But so that that $20 billion roughly loss was stuffed onto the FDIC, which harmed everybody else. Now the FDIC is weaker to cover, you know, the, the two, the three, almost $3 trillion of, of insured deposits they cover. And now you have Janet Yellen coming in and saying, oh, instead of covering only the $3 trillion, we want $20 trillion to be covered. So they have $100 billion now covering $3 trillion at FDIC, and they want to extend that to cover $20 trillion. It, it's, just, it's just insane. Now, what they're totally missing, this is a Fed failure, a Biden administration failure, and they've done this before. We had, this, we had the county, economy running perfectly in, with Trump world, wage growth, bank safety and soundness, and then the, the Biden regime comes in there and fouls it all up. And now they could have said, well, let's have some more capital standards. You know, we want mark-to-market accounting for the bond portfolio. You know, Biden inflation just hammered the financial sector. It hammered, it hammered everybody. Inflation's up, our costs are up, but it also drove down the value of the bank's bond portfolio. So that's a, wh- a whammy. But then you have all this other d- nonsense going on with, with poor regulation. The, b- the bank regulators were asleep at the switch. The rating agencies missed this. They should have said, no, we've got to mark these books to market like the mutual fund industry does and recognize it. The banks still, even with that, the banks will still have capital. It'd be less capital. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the Jen Charlton show on WFMD. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Jen. I have with me today, Robert Bose, who's an expert in banking, has a background in mortgage banking and and working with banks and closing down banks. So we are uh, talking about one thing. I want to get this on the record. In the case of Silicon Valley Bank, based in California, what percentage of the money there loaned or held was China money? That's a question I don't know that it's been answered, but it, I'm not even sure it's been asked, but it needs to be answered. We need to know to what degree that bank had outside foreign influence or control or investments that we, the people, are now covering. Any thoughts about that? 
Sure. The, the, we, we needs to be investigated. The amount of hot money deposits that flowed in, uh, Silicon Valley Bank was offering these fat yields because they had to fund the loan draws on the, the global global venture capital fund draws. They were drawing down their line of credit. They, they So they had to go attract hot money deposits. And big, what do you large, mean by hot money? Explain oh, just please. institutional size, like millions at a time would come in because they 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 had to fund the draws on the lines of credit. There was seventy-five billion in loans, and another sixty-six billion of unfunded loan commitments that they had to make to the venture capital industry. And when the venture capital industry was stressed out, they started drawing on their 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 undrawn lines, and to fund those line draws, Silicon Valley Bank had to go out and chase, pay up high yields all around the world to attract deposits. And those deposits flowed in very quickly, but as soon as they, it's the ones that flow in quickly also flow out very quickly. So they had a super concentration problem, and it did include, I'm sure, uh, they, they had they had loan, loans to Chinese entities, and they probably had deposits to Chinese entities, but that needs to be determined. And I think we should also look at Russia and, frankly, Ukraine. I think those countries need to be investigated as well. Right. So that we but understand just, to what extent foreign money is, frankly, infiltrating our, our banking system. And I, I'm not naive to, to think that we don't have a global financial you know, interactions. I get that. But when it comes to now your decisions, your, your wheeling and dealing is impacting us, our taxes, and our ability to, frankly, feel safe with our own money, then we have the right to know. But the big, big change is now that, that the Biden administration, Janet Yellen, uh, the, the venture capital industry, the, those large investors, large, large depositors, they have been agitating for a bailout. They want FDIC insurance protection. They, they are currently not entitled to it. FDIC covers the little guys, 250000 and less. And now to, for this risky, high-velocity high money, Janet Yellen uniquely just arbitrarily said, oh, yeah, we're going to cover every every depositor, including these institutional depositors, large ones, uh, by by extending and, and damaging the FDIC to do that. That was illegal. My view, that was illegal. Uh, they didn't have the discretion to do that. They abandoned normal financial stability oversight. They didn't talk to Congress. It, it shouldn't have been done. We need to we need to protect the little guy in the in the FDIC system and not dilute it with with bailing out sophisticated large institutional depositors. I really appreciate you saying that, and I and I think that um, I I'm going to go back to. Silicon Valley Bank houses money, did, for the wealthiest of the wealthy in California, including the governor of the state, who made a personal phone call, right? Yes, to the treasurer and to the the White House. Requesting cover cover us. They wanted all their deposits covered, even the ones that were uninsured. So it's basically like it's like you know he have a car he has a car crash, his his liability policy is fifty thousand, but he's got a you know a Ferrari, and he says oh I want my whole Ferrari covered, you know, three hundred thousand. So guess who? Well, guess we who would pay- call that insurance fraud. It's insurance fraud. Who 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 pays the cost of that claim? 
It's the rest of us depositor, depositors. And what Janet Yellen just told us is that they're going to jack up the deposit insurance premiums for everybody else to pay for the malpractice and pay for the Biden inflation impact on the bonds, pay for Gavin Newsom's is, is uh, large deposits. It's very corrupt. I mean, it's that's public, the bottom public, line. It's public. And this is classic with, with venture capital firms out there. They want public or private gain when it goes well, but they want everybody else to eat the losses when it doesn't go well. Yeah. FDIC is yeah. not set up for that. It should not be changed. So government protection cannot show discriminatory practices. This seems to me to be discrimination. Highly selective. This was Correct. this was, you know, lobbying, cronyism, just for Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank. And I can say from a safety and soundness perspective, the other banks are not in this situation. They don't have this super concentration of risk and they all have the, the bond bond unrealized losses because inflation has driven rates up, the bond values are down. They all have to deal with that. And that's a that's a fundamental accounting problem. They need to be they need to mark their books to market. Um, but when you do that, when you have those problems and you have these other problems like Silicon Valley Bank did it with venture capital funds and what Signature Bank did with crypto and FTX disaster, then you're done. Your bank the bank is, doesn't have enough capital. So you have to shut them down. So, uh, but the but the loss who bears the losses? Us us small depositors should not be paying for the losses for that kind of man mismanagement. Back to what you said that I think we're going to wrap up with, and then I'm going to have you again next week. At the end of the day, the big money got their big money out, and then the bank crash. That's right. That's exactly what happened. That's disgusting. And it was it was arbitrary, capricious policy should not have happened. Well, they also had a heads up and a warning because just within days prior, they pulled out their money. So somebody knew something and somebody told somebody something and the word got out and they covered themselves, leaving everybody else holding the bag. Totally unacceptable. And I'm calling upon Congress and everybody, including yourself, Robert, and anyone else who has the knowledge and expertise to understand this. I want to know, was Gavin Newsom one of those people that got his money out? He was one of them. He was one of them. That was okay. part of the... Here you go. That, to me, is fraud. The man ought to be impeached. That's illegal activity at the at the expense of the taxpayers and, and and all Americans, not just Californians, and enough is enough. So this is the kind of thing we're covering here on the Jen Charlton Show, and I really appreciate your time, Robert. We will have you back next week. I want to cover next week because it, it, it's a whole show on the new um, O Biden regime transfer of wealth, which is I think what's all this is about when you look at it from a 30,000 foot view, the, uh, um, the executive order that he signed in March of last year that went into effect mid-December that has us looking at digital currency as the new money, which would have paper money go by the wayside and be worthless. But it also puts all the power and control of our resources, our hard-earned dollars in the control of the government 
who, by the way, Pelosi calls us maggots and we're deplorables. So are, are we led to believe that our money will be treated the same as the money of their buddies? Apparently not, based on what just happened at, at the uh, Silicon Valley Bank when Mr. Newsom got his money out. So this is what's going on in our country, and we need to start saying enough is enough. Robert Bose, thank you. God bless you. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And please keep up this fight for truth and transparency around banking and finance, because we're relying on people like you to help us get this right. Okay? God thank bless you. Thank you, Jen. All right. Everybody, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with Liz Harrington after this break. Welcome back. It's great to have everybody here. So I thought it would be a good opportunity to bring in somebody to talk a little bit about what's been going on on the other front, which is the possible indictment of President Trump. We have not seen an indictment. And so what is coming, we don't know. But we know that we know one thing that they're trying from all sides to take down President Trump because he's the front runner and he's the people's choice, really. And I want to say this also. I like Ron DeSantis as a governor of Florida. He's done a great job. I think he and Christy Nome could be terrific examples for how other states should run effective governance at the state level. And if we had them just shifting the the state governments across the country, that would be a tremendous service to all the people. So I think we have to be more strategic in the conservative party. I think sometimes we, we think selfishly about what's best for us, and we don't think about what's best for putting America first. And I am a big believer that Ron DeSantis may have his turn at the at the gavel, so to speak, as as president, but not now. I think we need him in in Florida doing what he's been doing and setting setting the example and setting the tone for the rest of the nation. Um, so that's my thoughts about that. I'm I stand beside and behind President Trump because he's proven himself to be an effective leader who can get the job done. And right now, we don't have the choice. We don't have the luxury, I should say, of having somebody in there that we're not sure can do it. We have to know they can do it because we are so far off the cliff right now, dangling by a thread, that it, we need somebody to come back in. And I hope we can do it in 2024 uh, because I'm not, I, I guess I should say I hope we make it to 2024. It's pretty bad out there right now. So I invited to the show Liz Harrington. Liz, good morning. Welcome back to the Jen Charlton Show. It's always a pleasure to have you here. Hey, Jen. Thanks for having me. What are your thoughts about where we are right now as a nation to start with? Well, we're in a very, very bad spot, uh, as you kind of alluded to. Um, we're in territory that we've never been in for the United States of America uh, and if they do indeed cross this Rubicon and try to arrest their number one political uh, opposition, President Trump, and there's really no uh, coming back from that. You're doing something that's so damaging to the fabric of our nation um, on totally trumped up fake sham charges, uh, of course, which we, we've seen the New York case. We, we don't know what's going to happen yet. 
Uh, it's clearly there was never a case to begin with, but it's totally fallen apart if they had anything before this week. Um, it's been proven, and you had Robert Costello testify to just the total lack of credibility of Michael Cohen. You had a letter come out uh, detailing from Michael Cohen's lawyer back in 2018 how there was no campaign finance violation. There couldn't have been because none of these funds were from the Trump organization or the Trump campaign. I mean, that kills the case. Not that there ever was one. President Trump, of course, has been innocent this entire time. But to take a step back and not even get into these details, because honestly, they're, they're so ludicrous. And uh, the American people know that. It's the using the judicial system, the legal system, the rule of law. It's turning it on its head to go after your political opponents in a way that only third world countries do, banana republics. And if we lose that as a nation, which we've already gone so far, uh, where we don't currently have our voice because of the rigged and stolen 2020 election, but if they continue down this path and try to use, because it's not just New York, it, it, very importantly, it's Georgia and it's DC with this out of control special counsel who's harassing our campaign. I mean, like you've never seen before, using taxpayer dollars, weaponizing law enforcement against their political opponents. If they continue to do this, I mean, we're not going to have a country. We're not going to have recourse for the American people to get to decide who rules them, who leads them. And that's what this country is entirely about. It's about consent of the governed. It's about the rule of law. It's about equal justice. Uh, that all of our rights come from God, and, e and those are applied should be applied equally. And so, if they continue down this path, it, it will destroy our nation. And and that's why they're clearly going after him so hard because they know they can't win legally, fair and square. They know they can't. So they're using every which way to try to stop him before. But uh, the people are not going to stand for it. So, when you talk about all of the maneuverings in government and, you know, clearly the DA has an agenda, right? Who knows what their political ambitions are, but surely there are some. So when you look at the judges, the judicial system, they really have not operated properly, in my view. I think a lot of people are shocked, actually, that they've dismissed out of hand virtually every case that has demonstrated evidence of voter fraud, election fraud, uh, government and high-tech interference, not to mention the Chinese and whoever else, throw them in, in the stew of people who have thrown our election system off. You know, they've thrown it like 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 you would at a racetrack and you'd throw the race or you'd you know, when people are betting, that's kind of like that. They've interfered in our political process. But what's shocking is the judges have not stood up for what's right. What do you say about that? Well, it, it's really why we're in the position we're in. And it's not just the judges, but. You know, it's members of Congress. It's, what you know, rubber stamping the fraudulent election. It's Mike Pence. It's all these elected leaders who didn't have the courage to do the right thing um, when the time came, when they had to make a decision to do what was right, follow the Constitution, um, listen to what the people were saying, and they refused to do it. But 
I will say we can't give up hope in the courts. I mean, it, it, it's so important that we continue to fight there. We did just get some good news. I mean, they tried to kind of get rid of the Cary Lake lawsuit, and they did toss, the Arizona Supreme Court did toss, you know, several aspects, the majority of her case, which, you know, we know, we've seen it, I mean, details tremendous amount of law-breaking malfeasance and fraud. However, they did keep the signature verification piece of her lawsuit, which they're alleging, I think it's about at least 100,000 mismatched signatures that should have never been counted on these phony mail-in ballots. They get to continue to pursue that aspect of the case. So there's still hope there, and we need to continue to pray for for judges to be courageous, to do the right thing, because all we need is one. If we just have one person of courage stand up um, and and prove that, you know, this is real, this is wrong, we cannot uh, have a country if we don't have a fair, free and fair election system. And there's also still cases pending in Georgia going all the way back to 2020. And since the state Supreme Court there ruled that uh, individuals do have standing. They're, they're, they're trying to kick it down the road. They're trying to delay these cases uh, because they know the law is not on their side. However, if these cases that dealing with Fulton County and alleged counterfeit ballots from the 2020 election, this case does move forward eventually, they will win because the law is on their side and they will have standing. So we have to keep pursuing this and can't give up. So a couple of things. One, the integrity piece. The when you look at the, it's not just courage on the part of the judges. It's do they have integrity? And in Carrie Lake's situation, they're alleging through Miss Breger that there were some judges, political officials, and their staff on the take. So if they are indeed dishonest, you know, there's that's tough because they have a position of power that we it, one of the things I asked my father is I said, who has the authority over the judge? Who's holding them to account if they're dishonest? And I think we haven't sorted that out yet because some of these judges are dishonest. It just is. You know, they're not immune to uh, dishonesty. Every industry has it to some degree or another. So I, I do have a concern about that. I want to talk well, if about... If I could just say one more yeah. thing on that. I mean, look at the behavior of some of these judges in the D.C. circuit that have been handling these January 6th cases, but also the special counsel. And you have this judge, Howell, who on her way out the door as the chief judge in D.C., uh, totally abused President Trump's attorney-client privilege, um, gave a ridiculous ruling, but without any chance to appeal. She delivered the lawyer-client uh, notes directly to Jack Smith's office when she was out the door without any legal recourse. And then, of course, the, the liberal well, judges, when they be. did have an appeal, didn't have a chance it was like a midnight deadline, and then you had to the the order came out at six a.m. 
And they're stacking the decks so much. So we have to have recourse for the judges. I mean, we, people need to, Congress needs to look at it. But also, you know, we need to look at what the rules are for impeachments as well, because you're right. Judges are not above the law either. And there's a lot of corruption going on, certainly in D.C., where they've been working hand in glove with the uh, DOJ and these out-of-control prosecutors to just abuse the law, abuse due process, have FBI informants, I mean, working the defense of some of these January 6th defendants. I mean, it's unbelievable, and, and we can't let this continue. Be sure to check out our podcast for the rest of the interview with Liz Harrington. And share this podcast to friends and family and colleagues so that the information can get out there because we're covering information that may not be available in your mainstream media. So go to WFMD.com and listen to our podcast and share it. And rate us. Give us a five-star. Have a great week.